Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. If your house is on fire, you call 911. You don't stop to think, wait, can I afford to call the fire department right now? We can all agree firefighters are essential. There's something we've taken out of the private market economy and decided are a public benefit, available to everyone. There are lots of other examples of this. Libraries, police, public education. Or at least, public education once kids are old enough for kindergarten. But what about before then? What about the first few years of a child's life? Those years are not guaranteed. Instead, Childcare for our youngest citizens can cost nearly as much as college tuition, and the prices keep going up. I'm Jenny Kaplan. From Wonder Media Network, this is Women Belong in the House. Last September, the U.S. Treasury Department reported that the average cost of care is about $10,000 a year per child. That's about 13% of a middle-class family's income. Meanwhile, the average child care worker makes just $24,000 a year. Many live in poverty. It's a system that families and lawmakers have been calling broken for decades. When the pandemic hit, the system collapsed completely. One in 10 providers left the field, and nearly 16,000 child care centers closed, leaving families with even fewer options than before. The Build Back Better Act would have been the first time in 50 years that the government meaningfully addressed this crisis. It would have made childcare completely free for low-income Americans. For others, it would have capped childcare costs at 7% of annual income. Plus, the act mandated that all teachers be paid a living wage. In most states, caregiver salaries would have doubled. But, as we know, the bill failed. So none of that. The free childcare, the capped costs, the doubled salaries happened. Today, I'm back with host of White Picket Fence Julie Kohler, who herself is a single mom who spent the last seven years navigating this crumbling system. Hi, Julie. Hi, Jenny. Great to see you. It's great to see you, too. So before the pandemic, what was your relationship like with childcare? Well, I have to sort of preface this by saying that I have been in an extremely privileged position in that I've been able to afford and access really high-quality child care since my son was born. So that puts me in a pretty rarefied position, you know, for families in the United States. But that said, I would say that securing child care has felt pretty much like a part-time job throughout my son's life. It has been a constant scramble. It is something that is always in the back of my mind that I'm thinking about. I am always tracking it. I am always thinking ahead to the next challenge. And it's a constant sort of anxiety that I that is always ever present. So here's kind of the childcare story that I went through. Um, I was able to employ a nanny for my son's first two years of his life. 
From the ages of two and three, uh, he attended a private preschool. And then beginning at age four, my son started attending public pre-K at our local public elementary school. And that is because we live in D.C., which is one of a handful of cities and states that provides universal pre-K to all children. So in some ways, we had some really good building blocks for childcare, but here's the thing. It sort of never ends. There's also after-school care. There are school closure days. I'm on one of those now as we record. There are summer camps or need for care during the summer. And even when my son had reliable child care, pre-pandemic, I often had evening work events. I often had to travel for work. And so there was a constant thinking about what am I going to do? How am I going to manage this? How can I make arrangements? It just sort of occupies this constant mental, you know, part, there's like a part of my brain that is only focused on childcare. Wow. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. That's just my, my only reaction. Exactly. <laughs> How did the pandemic then affect that caregiving web, the caregiving balance that you had struck? It it really blew it up, is what I would say. I talked about this a bit in the prologue episode to the second season of White Picket Fence. But, you know, over the course of about the year and a half where either schools were closed um, and we were on virtual learning or there was a hybrid, you know, situation where my son was maybe in school a couple of days a week and virtual other days. Over the course of that year and a half, I cycled through five different childcare arrangements. And so we were in kind of a constant state of flux and that kind of mental anxiety and then, you know, of of thinking about childcare was amplified, you know, I multiple times. I mean, it was just something that I was really chronically struggling with. So at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously, when we went into lockdown, I was providing full-time child care. And I was somehow trying to balance and juggle, you know, getting my son logged in for virtual pre-K meetings while sitting in the corner and trying to do work and, you know, or trying to desperately run into the other room and answer some emails and then come back because something had happened with his iPad and, you know, doing all of that kind of ridiculous juggling that just really is not tenable. I then had a former babysitter who, once the safety situation was, you know, we deemed it uh, adequate, was able to come back and provide part-time care for us. But because she lived far away, because public transportation was something that we were worried about at that time, I would go and pick her up and bring her back. And so I was spending about an hour and a half in the car every day, in addition to my work day, just shuttling back and forth to handle care. I then, and we talked about this a lot in the second season, and in fact, interviewed my child care provider who provided care for a, a few months during this, this process. It was a former preschool teacher of my son's who herself had been furloughed from her job early in the pandemic and then had to make a really difficult decision about whether or not to go back to work once her preschool reopened. She also had young children. And so the arrangement that we worked out is that I would pay her to watch my son in her home alongside her own children. But yeah, it was a really, really difficult period, for sure the most challenging period of my life since my son was born. 
there was a moment when one of my child care providers, you know, her schedule changed. She wasn't going to be able to provide care for my son anymore. And I remember just being in my bedroom and like breaking down and feeling completely just overwhelmed. Like I, I've run out of options. I honestly don't know what I'm going to be able to do. And my son came running into my room and, you know, he was really upset to see me so upset. And he turned to me and he said, mommy, are you going to cry every day? And it's just like that moment of feeling so overwhelmed, so kind of out of options, so, you know, just really felt sort of abandoned, that we were all kind of left to our own devices. And, you know, and and to also have the realization that I was better off and better equipped than so many families during the pandemic it just, to me, was a really enraging feeling. Like, if we cannot come out of that low-point moment building back better systems for our country, then, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing? That really breaks my heart, that story. As a family sociologist, even before you had your son, this was a world that you were working in, that you were familiar with. Did you feel prepared when you became a parent to deal with these challenges? I mean, maybe maybe not the pandemic-level challenges, but did you feel like you knew what to do, you knew what was available, you knew the challenges in front of you, or was this something that took you by surprise? I wouldn't say it took me by surprise because these are issues that I'd been studying for a long time, but I will say it brings it home in a different way when you're experiencing it yourself and when it's not an abstract concept. So let's talk about childcare expense for for an example. Like I knew when I could probably have cited many of the statistics about how much people were paying for childcare and how unaffordable it was for the majority of families. You know, childcare right now eats up about anywhere between 14 to 35 percent of household income for lower and middle class families. So that's a huge amount of your money that is going to just pay for childcare every every month. And I knew that conceptually. But once you start writing those checks every month, it really hits home in a different way. I, I want to really talk about the fact that this is a hardship for families to afford childcare. But I think one of the things that needs to be brought to the center is that the flip side of the coin of this is that childcare workers are really poorly compensated. And so we see so many cases where women, and it is mostly women, who work in the childcare industry are actually not able to afford care for their own children. And I think that just really shows how broken this industry and this marketplace really is. This might be a bigger question than we even have time to address, but If parents are paying so much and workers are making so little, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, what is the gap here? What am I missing that it's so expensive and yet the people providing the care are making so little? This is the this is the crux. We are so used to thinking about markets as fundamentally functional, as rational, as effective, as efficient and the childcare marketplace is none of those things. 
it doesn't work. It is it is a public good, and treating it like a private market is not tenable. So when you look at what drives up costs, like what is it that makes childcare so expensive? Fundamentally, it's because it's personnel heavy industry. Personnel takes up about 60 to 80 percent of the costs of childcare. Why is that? Because you need a lot of teachers to teach young children. The younger the age of the child, the more personnel you need because you need lower teacher-child ratios, right? You can't have one teacher providing care to 25 infants. You need to have that be a much lower ratio because infants require more one-on-one individual care. And so those ratios kind of go up a bit as children age. And so by the time they're in school, you can have, you know, a class size of 25 students perhaps. Um, But that's not possible in children's early years. And so, you know, some conservatives like to sort of say, well, the problem is regulation. You know, the industry is overregulated. And so that's, you know, making it inefficient and too expensive. But like, that's just how you provide quality care. We can't automate our way out of this. We can't, you know, relegate infant or the care of young children to robots. So fundamentally, we need to reframe how we look at child care. We don't think about public education, K-12 education, as being something that has to be profitable because public education is viewed as a public good that we provide to all children in our society. It is part of what constitutes being a functioning society, is enabling and equipping every child to access an education. There is nothing different about those zero to five years. Children also need care and education before they hit the age of five or before they're eligible to go to kindergarten. And we need to start treating those early years as just an extension of the way we already conceptualize our education system for kids ages five to 18. Seems like Everyone agrees that there should be some sort of funding for for education. Mm-hmm. So why is it that we have this gap of the zero to five age group? Like, where does that come from? What sort of like ideology is that stemming from that we're like from zero to five, it's on you. And then from five to 18, we got you. I think it's a result of two things. So one is a lack of knowledge about early childhood, or maybe I would say a stunted understanding of what happens in those early childhood years. I think for a long time, we didn't see young children as learners. We saw this as those years as just kind of you need to meet children's basic needs, keep them safe and loved, but they weren't learning. It wasn't real school. It was somehow distinguished from actual education. And what we know is that children are learning incredibly quickly from the moment they take their first breath, right? I mean, this is a period, early childhood is actually the period of the most dramatic learning gains that we ever have in our entire lifespan. So because learning looks different in those early childhood years, because it often happens in the context of play, I think people somehow separate it from education. 
But I think that's why, and advocates have really tried to do this for many years, they've talked about those early years, those zero to five years, as years of early care and education. And the sector that is providing care for children during those years as an early care and education sector, it is impossible to distinguish what is education and what is care. The bottom line is that even our K-12 education system does both. All of our, you know, attending to our children's needs from birth to 18 and probably beyond, it is caregiving and it is education. And it would behoove all of us to recognize how intertwined those concepts are. But the second reason is also whose responsibility has it traditionally been to provide that care? And as we went into this season on White Picket Fence, we have an ideology about gender and about families, that this is a private family responsibility that should be provided by women. And even today, in 2022, when two incomes are necessary to support most families, when one in five children is being raised in a single-parent home, when you know many women are in the labor force because they want to be in the labor force, even today, we are having these fights, this notion that women should stay at home and care for their children, that is possible for some, it's desirable for some, it's not for others. And so to have no backup, to have no choice for people is really a relic of an ideology that is trying to get more and more families to conform and to, in particular, encourage more and more married women to be at home with their children. And I think the final thing that we need to look at is the way that race intersects with gender in the devaluing of care work. So child care has not only traditionally been viewed as women's work, it's often been relegated to black women and other women of color. And I think you cannot separate how this is economically devalued, how it is politically devalued with who has performed those roles. We do not let other sectors crumble the way that we allow our childcare sector to crumble and to be so strapped chronically. And it is a direct reflection of the racism and the misogyny and the lack of respect and the lack of dignity that our society has really paid to some of its most valued workers. To dive into how the cost of childcare is continuing to play out in the halls of Congress, I spoke with Assistant Speaker Catherine Clark for Massachusetts' 5th District. Driven by her own experiences struggling with the care economy, Representative Clark has dedicated much of her career to championing the right of American families to quality, affordable care. I'd love to start with the basics of why is this issue the one that you champion among all the care economy issues, why is this one that you feel is particularly important? Well, Jenny, thank you for having me back on the podcast and for asking this question. And for me, childcare is so fundamental to how we look at our economy, how we look at our education system and healthcare system. And how we, in 2022, define what is infrastructure. 
And childcare is all of those things. And the system has never worked for working families and especially for women. And then the pandemic came along and brought what was already a fragile care system to a breaking point and really pulled the curtain back on the struggles of working families. And we've been able to shift that paradigm of how we think about childcare, going from decades of talking about childcare as a private decision between parents and usually moms and a provider to understanding that this is a public good. And if we want to build a stronger, more inclusive, more competitive global economy, we have to invest in childcare. How has discussion around childcare changed or shifted over the course of your time as an elected official? You know, as of very recently, if we got small increases in the budget, we really celebrated that. But after the pandemic, we finally had the attention of business, both big and small, uh, saying we need a workforce back. We need to have an economy that works again. And they understood that it wasn't going to happen unless we made investments to to prop up childcare in, in this emergency. And so what seemed like a phenomenal number that I advocated for uh, in the height of a pandemic saying we need to invest $50 billion in childcare is actually what we were able to do because of this change in understanding that childcare is basic economic infrastructure. And it used to be something we would sort of chant alone at rallies. And now we've had that mantle picked up and that understanding picked up everywhere from the White House to small businesses and restaurants in my district. I totally hear what you were saying in terms of Childcare being something that so often is has been thought of as basically something parents have to figure out. And so for people who aren't familiar, how does government help with childcare? What are the things that that we have in place that help support American families and and also what's missing? So what we are building on is a system of subsidies that are based on income level. Um, that is funded primarily by the state government, but really done through state plans. So states have different ways of doing it, but it is that critical federal funding that helps with the child care development block grant that really enables families to be able to afford what they need. And as good as those programs are and as critical as they are, they're simply not enough. And one of the aspects, we know that we have to make child care more accessible. Over half of American families live in child care deserts where they don't have adequate child care. And that can be urban, suburban, and rural. Um, but we also know that we have to look at our early educators and how we are paying them, how we are funding them. And for me, this really started uh, and crystallized 
in a 2019 town hall I did here at home in Massachusetts, where I had a group of child care providers come to the town hall to tell me about while they were providing child care for families, this critical link to families getting to work and kids having a great start at success, um, they were unable to care for their own families. And all of them needed housing subsidies, food subsidies, even though they were working over 40 hours a week. So it says so much about how we treat what we classify as women's work in this country. And child care providers are overwhelmingly women and disproportionately women of color. And they often work for poverty wages. And child care needs this federal government intervention because it is both very expensive for families and pays very low wages at the same time. So that's why it's so important that we have this investment um, in not only our families, but in the providers, because we have to look at it as a holistic system. Why do you think it was that COVID so changed people's perspectives on this issue? I mean, you mentioned that what seemed like a huge amount of money actually got passed, which feels somewhat rare <laughs> these days um, on these kinds of things. So I'm curious, how did COVID change the whole picture here? You know, COVID just uh, ripped away any excuses we had about it. And I think did two things. First, it showed that the pandemic recession was going to disproportionately affect women. Um, you know, many economists are calling this the she session, as we still see women uh, leaving the labor force uh, in unprecedented numbers because they cannot find child and elder care. And just in January, 27 times more men than women joined the labor force. And that is because of the childcare crisis in large part. And so we came to understand not only women's role in the economy and how necessary it is, but just also how precarious it is. And as you know, people are employers around the country are looking at the great resignation and trying to get back to where they are. There was nowhere left to make excuses about the lack of childcare and its impact on our economy. And so, unfortunately, it took this huge of a crisis to actually start to reframe and grow understanding of the importance of childcare. And, you know, the United States is well behind other developed countries in their emphasis on this. We pay on average $500 in public uh, funding for a toddler, where other developed countries pay more on average of $14,000 a year. So we are in the middle of a transition, um, and we have to keep the pressure on to make sure that we not only come out of this with a better understanding, but really redoing our our funding. I always find that stat just baffling, <laughs> the 
uh, $500 versus $14,000. So given the shift that we saw in terms of the attitude during COVID, what was accomplished in with regards to childcare costs through the American Rescue Plan? And what was left on the table when those benefits came to an end? Yeah, I mean, this relief was absolutely essential to helping child care providers stay afloat and get parents back to work. Uh, and I can tell you, in my district, uh, business leaders told me time and again that child care was the number one challenge they had when it came to staff retention and hiring. And it was a lifeline for care providers but now we need to completely restructure the way we fund childcare and treat it like the public good that it is. And some of that starts with how we support caregivers and care workers. Um, the average pay for childcare workers is about $12 an hour, a little under 12 and a quarter an hour or $25,000 a year. That puts them in the bottom 2% of all professions. So we are trying to, we need to continue to do work to provide livable wages for workers and to be able to lower costs, not the wages. So that includes doing things like public support for upgrading childcare facilities, opening new programs in high-need areas, creating tax incentives for employers and others uh, to, to build child care facilities. And at that time when many companies are struggling, uh, ensuring child care centers can afford to pay their staff a living wage will not only increase that worker's quality of life, but it's going to help us guarantee that these facilities can be fully staffed and ready to support parents and children. So there's a lot to do. <laughs> um, how how were these needs addressed in the Build Back Better Act? Yes, there there certainly is a lot to do. Um, you know, we President Biden and Democrats in Congress, this agenda, the care agenda came from listening to the American people. And we continue to, to press forward as the president laid out in the State of the Union, middle-class and working families shouldn't have to pay more than 7% of their income on childcare. This is the figure that economists agree is a fair, workable uh, percentage of an income that should go to childcare. And right now, families are paying up to $14,000 a year. In my state of Massachusetts, that's $20,000 a year. That is more than college tuition. That becomes, even for a dual-income family that most people would consider doing very well, a very difficult expense to be able to fit into a family budget. So our plan will cut those costs in half, help parents, especially moms, get back to work. And it also includes the home and long-term care and universal pre-K for every three and four-year-old. So this plan is fundamentally about lowering costs for families while increasing the outcomes and success for our youngest learners and children. Because we know 
that if a child is reading at grade level by third grade, that is a game changer and a really high indicator of future earnings for that child. So this is not only good for our economy in the short term and the long term, it is really good investment in the health of our future. It seems like the benefits are so clear. And I know that generally care economy policies have very broad support in in the public. I'm curious, what are the main arguments against these policies that you're struggling against in Congress as you're trying to get these policies across the line? I mean, it really is. (laughs) It is difficult to understand. Not only are the benefits so clear, so well documented, so studied and data driven, um, you know, why haven't we done this before? And I think it goes to a lot of the issues that you have talked about and tackled. When you don't have women in leadership, when you don't have women in government at all levels pressing on these issues, they tend to get swept under the rug. And childcare, whether you are approaching it from a women in the economy and the value of their work, Um, or whether you're looking at it from a provider angle and saying these traditional roles for women that we just don't want to pay for and treat as as true um, uh, support systems that are as integral to economic success as roads and bridges and broadband access um, and college degrees. Like, these are you know, we can really trace this back to a double standard that we have for women in the economy, women in our broader culture. And I don't think it's a coincidence as I sat in the State of the Union and looked at not only um, the president of the United States talking about childcare in a very different way than we have talked about it before, but behind him, was our first woman vice president in Kamala Harris and our first woman speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, backed up by a historic number of women in Congress. And that changes the policies. It changes the support and the value system of what our priorities in Washington are. So representation matters and child care is a classic example of that. Since Build Back Better is no longer, I'm curious, what path are you pursuing to expand access to child care now? What are the proposals that are currently in Congress or that will be in Congress um, to try to get these services uh, and, and policies through? You know, we are at the negotiating table ensuring that we are going to fulfill our promise to the American people. And, you know, whatever legislative package, whether that is appropriations, a future reconciliation package, child care is going to be in the mix. And I hear from my House Democratic members that we cannot walk away from the negotiating table. We need to deliver. And, you know, my message is that There has not been one Republican senator at the negotiating table. Republicans have deserted American families, especially on the issue of child care. 
So I ran for Congress to make universal pre-K a reality, and I'm not walking away from this fight. We have to remember to be really bold on these issues and to know also that this is a winning issue. When voters look at childcare and preschool, over 80% of them understand this is a good investment of their taxpayer money. And 70% of voters believe federal funding is needed to have parents have safe, reliable, high-quality care while they work. The American people understand this issue, and our job is to make sure that those in the Beltway catch up. But this is a winning issue for our economy. It's a winning issue politically, and it is part of a real drive to make sure that women's equality is not just a talking point, but a reality for every woman in this country. There's a lot of data supporting these issues and why they're so important for the country from a from many perspectives, but particularly the economic perspective. I'm curious, taking this to a little bit more of the personal place, you said that you ran on on a platform of of getting universal pre-K to be a reality. Why has childcare been such an important issue to you personally throughout your political career? You know, I was very fortunate to be able to work as general counsel the Office of Child Care Services here in Massachusetts and see the impact that quality child care can have uh, and how transformative it can be. Uh, for every family and every child, but especially for low-income children. And I also remember the struggle affording childcare, that while I was working in that position, uh, you know, my husband and I realized that my entire paycheck was going to childcare for my three children. And, you know, this is a a decision and a choice that um, so many moms have to wrestle with. And I was lucky to have a dual-income family, and we could get through these years as as expensive and hard as it was at times. Um, But that's not a choice for single moms. Um, They have to put this together. And with, um, with federal funding, we can unlock Uh, the incredible economic strength of women. And we can help kids build that resiliency, that early language exposure, access to health care that can also help put them on an even footing so that when they hit kindergarten, they are ready to learn. And so whether it's universal pre-K, expanded funding for child care, all of this is about investing in the American family and making sure that we really look at those ideals that we talk about in a democracy and put them into action. And childcare is just one of those examples of where we can do that effectively. It will pay off dividends for us way into the future. So coming out of that conversation with the Congresswoman was the stat that we've previously mentioned, that the U.S. spends around $500 per kid on child care and early education. 
while the average among other countries that could be considered our peers is 14,000. What does that difference actually look like? What happens when that much is spent on one kid? It's sort of difficult to imagine in the U.S. how much that could change things. Not too long ago, I started talking with a friend of mine who lives in Sweden about childcare. We started comparing and talking about what we actually paid, and it kind of blew my mind. So my friend who lives in Sweden is, you know, a in a two-parent family, married with three children, and she pays about $350 a month for childcare for her three children. She also, because they are Swedish citizens, <laughs> receive a child stipend that comes to about $560 a month. So she's able to go to a local childcare program and enroll her child in that program. They are widely accessible. They are convenient. They are near their homes. They are able to drop their kids off easily. They cover the entire day that the parents need to work. And they're paying, you know, as I mentioned earlier, she in particular is paying $350 a month for three children to access that care. She's able to access after-school care for her children when they are school-aged. Um, you know, all it, all of these costs are either going to be privately incurred or they're going to be publicly subsidized. In comparison, when my son was in private preschool, I was paying probably between $2,500 and $3,000 a month for his tuition. And when I had a nanny, it was much more than that. And my, my friend in Sweden was just like, I don't actually understand how people can have children in the U.S. Like, how do you actually do it? Now, granted, there's probably some discrepancies in salaries to uh, reflect this. But by and large, like we are, it, it's just a completely untenable amount that families are paying here in the U.S. So just to clarify, to make sure I understand, if we were as a country to spend around $14,000 a year per kid on childcare and early education, we could imagine that it would just be like public education for K through 12. So kids would have access to care. There wouldn't be competition for spots. It would be something that no matter who you are or where you live, you have access to coverage as a parent and care as a child for those years that currently are simply not covered. That's right. We would basically have expanded public early care and education. So this is a lot of the provisions around universal pre-K to expand what we think of as public education into the ages of three and four. And that we would still retain... Uh, what's called a mixed delivery system for childcare for the ages of children zero to three, meaning that it wouldn't be that you'd be shipping your infant off to the local public school. But you would have government investment in private childcare centers so that costs would be greatly reduced and that availability would be greatly increased for childcare for our youngest children. It's encouraging to think that people are now at the negotiating table in Congress trying to make change on this and many of the topics we've discussed this season. And I'm also hesitant to believe that 
progress is going to be made on such a huge shift in how we think about a whole industry to to change how we think about it from a market to a public good. What do you think we can actually hope to see over the next few years when it comes to federal or more broadly government change in the care economy in our child care system? Things often feel impossible until they don't. And I think that this is one of the examples of that, that it feels like we have, you know, been climbing this mountain forever. We almost passed a child care bill that would have done this 50 years ago, and it was vetoed by then-President Nixon. Like, you know, it it is ridiculous that here we are again 50 years later and trying to claw our way back to the same things that could have been in place literally half a century ago had we had we had more political leadership. But I do think that there's been a turning point in awareness. And I do think that the suffering is not going away. We are going to be continuing to live in an environment where families of all sorts in communities large and small, families of all political persuasions, are going to be really struggling to find childcare. And I think, again, as representation in Congress has changed, as we have more and more leaders like Representative Clark, who themselves have experienced firsthand what it's like to be trying to juggle this and, and, and secure quality childcare for their own children, I think they're just, we're not going to accept no for an answer. And so, you know, the Build Back Better Act is not moving forward in the framework that it that we thought it was going to in the fall. But negotiations on this issue in particular have not stopped. And I would, you know, I, do I hazard a guess on whether or not we'll see this pass? I don't know. But I know that there are still a lot of people fighting very hard to see new public investments in child care and universal pre-K and to make them a reality in the months to come. Next week, on our final episode of the season, we're going to look at the political future of these pivotal policies. Plus, I'm sitting down with a congresswoman whose caregiving journey has personal significance for me. My mom, Representative Kathy Manning. To dive deeper into the history of the caregiving crisis, tune in on Thursday for another episode of White Picket Vents. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network show created by me, Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Maddie Foley, and Taylor Williamson. Original music by Miles Moran. Special thanks to Julie Kohler. Talk to you next time. Have you ever thought about what it's like to be a woman in the room with Putin and Trump? Or maybe you've asked yourself what the Republican Party should really stand for. Or perhaps you're someone who's just constantly wondering if work-life balance is really possible. If you find yourself asking important questions like these, or just want to be better informed about the world around you, then you should check out the podcast The Economist Asks, where you'll find answers to thought-provoking questions, from politics to dating apps to business. Each week, influential guests like Malala Yousafzai, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Melody Hobson 
sit down with host Anne McElvoy for in-depth and challenging conversations that keep us curious and informed. So keep asking, keep listening, and keep learning. Join the conversation today by subscribing to The Economist Asks podcast. That's The Economist Asks podcast from our friends over at The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free today, wherever you get your podcasts.